Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy brought to you by the team of investigative journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Adjipong Parsons. In this episode, we'll be finding out why a Herefordshire farmer was given jail time for straightening out part of a protected river, why DEFRA's got beef against Natural England's interventions in Dartmoor, and the dangers of the Environment Agency striking following a recent blaze in Nottinghamshire. For our deep dive section, we'll be speaking with the sustainable farming campaigner Vicky Hurd about elms and how international trade deals may impact the country's environmental goals. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm joined by the ENDS Report's news editor Pippa Neal and journalist Shosha Aidy to help deal with the mountains and moorlands of environmental policy this week. For our first big story, we're talking prison time and a £600,000 fine slapped on a farmer for destroying part of a protected river habitat in Herefordshire. Shosha, what's the story? In a nutshell, John Price, a 68-year-old farmer, has been found guilty of charges that include dredging and reprofiling a 1.5-kilometre stretch of the River Lug on his land in Kingsland, Herefordshire. He appeared at Kidderminster Magistrates Court on Thursday last week and was sentenced to 12 months in prison and given not just the £600,000 fine, but also must pay around another £600,000 in costs to restore the area he damaged as part of a restoration order under the Wildlife and Countryside Act. This is quite a strong prosecution, and it's worth noting that this is also because the River Lug, which flows from its source in Wales over the border, where it eventually merges with the River Wye um, near Hereford, is designated as a triple SI, which is um, a site of special scientific interest because of the biodiversity and the species that live there. Um, so triple SIs have the highest level of environmental protection. And, and essentially, jo- John Price was then fined the £600,000 and then an extra £600,000 in legal costs in this restoration order. What did he do then? What was his impact on the lug? In total, it's reported that he uprooted around 71 mature trees and felled another 24. Um, He also used heavy heavy machinery such as bulldozers and excavators to really change the profile of the river, destroying the riverbanks. Um, And and the area was home to species like otters and kingfishers, as well as a really wide range of aquatic flora. So um, the Environment Agency, which brought the case alongside Natural England, actually described it as the worst case of riverside destruction that it had seen. And on that point then, do we know why he did this? Well, he he argued that he undertook some of the work as part of protecting local properties from floods. But the court heard that his action didn't really have um, any flood prevention benefit, reportedly. He argued this for a while um, and was actually regarded a bit of a local hero in, in a strange way on this. Um, and spoke to him in December 2020 when, when the issue first really came to the attention of the EA in Natural England after Herefordshire Wildlife Trust first sounded the alarm. And he said he believed that what he was doing was legal and actually part of protecting the surrounding area. I remember when it all kicked off and you're right, there was a local hero type clamour about it and I, I went down to I remember going down to some uh, an area of the lug and turning around and, and seeing seeing what what happened and the, and the soil profile there and you know so I spoke to a few of the locals including the farmer and, and yeah there was this like oh he did the right thing he, yeah we back him mm. um, which is really at odds with this kind of you know nature restoration um, prosecution and yeah. it's, it's really disparate 
It's interesting because he must have known what he was doing because Natural Resources Wales gave him a stop order. So part of the charges was failing to comply with this. Um, and, and it's hard to argue that, you know, he was, he, he didn't know that he was doing wrong. Um, but I do think some people were shocked by the jail sentence. Um, Conservative MP for North Herefordshire, Bill Wigan, came out in Price's defence after the ruling, saying the fine was understandable, but the jail sentence was unnecessary. He said, um, I support tough sentencing, especially where it's used to protect the public from dangerous people such as burglars. But a man that's been convicted of damaging a riverbed is not the same sort of threat to our society. So really interesting, the perceptions around this. And the potential knock-on effects for other landowners working in SIs and Yeah, exactly. So on to our next story then. Uh, it's an ends exclusive with the discovery that England's environment watchdog was missing in action following a potentially hazardous inferno that raged in March. Pippa, you broke this story. Where was the EA? So on the day of the fire, which was Saturday the 18th of March, um, thousands of environment agency staff were taking part in industrial action. Um, so this is members from the union Unison um, who kind of work in incidents such as floods, water pollution, waste fires and fly tipping. And for the industrial action began on the 22nd of March and lasted for three weeks and meant that they weren't attending incidences over the weekends. And then what about the fire itself then? So the fire occurred at a textile recycling site owned by Savannah Rags in Mansfield, Nottingham. Um, and I'm not too sure exactly why the fire started, but I know it was a pretty huge blaze. Um, at its peak, there was 100 firefighters there from 16 different crews. Um, nearby homes were evacuated, electricity in the area was shut off, and residents were told to stay inside due to smoke and concern about potentially hazardous materials. So what did the EA say about this when it all broke? I was speaking to an environment agency officer who works in the incident response team, and they said to me that normally the agency would have sent teams of people to deal with a blaze like this, focusing on the issue of chemical retardant pollution, um, potentially impacting the waterways around, around the site. Yet they said because of the industrial action, the agency didn't send a single member of staff. And a spokesperson from the agency confirmed this to me and said that the agency supported remotely. Right. So what have the unions said in response to this? So I think why this is interesting is because, you know, some people might might say, well, that's obvious. If the Environment Agency staff are on strike or taking part in industrial action, then obviously they're not going to be attending incidences like this. Um, but Environment Agency staff have been striking or withdrawing from on-call rosters since last December. But to a certain extent, that's kind of slipped under the radar because thankfully there hasn't been that many incidences. But I guess, you know, this huge fire has really shone a light on the work that environment agency staff do. And the fact that kind of no member of staff attended is a really big deal. Donna Rome Merriman, who's the head of environment at Unison, said to me that by not resolving the issue and by digging their heels and refusing talks, ministers are effectively giving a free rein to polluters. Understood. So you didn't realise that the EA was so necessary until a blaze like this occurs and there's potential chemical hazardous pollution that could result from it. And now this has gone up the agenda potentially for, for, for unionists. Exactly. And during all of the industrial action that's been happening um, you know, over the past few months, the Environment Agency has said that they have kind of life and limb cover where if there is you know, a, a serious threat through flooding, for example, that they would send staff members. But it's not quite clear what exactly 
constitutes a threat to life and limb. And, you know, it's arguable what that means. And, you know, the long-term impact potentially of chemical pollution from this water runoff is, you know, quite potentially quite huge. So, you know, it's just kind of, I guess, yeah, highlights why kind of the government does need to resolve these issues with environmental agency staff. For our final big green news story this week, we're talking Sheepgate and the growing tensions between farmers and Natural England after the watchdog issued new rules on farmers wanting to join stewardship payments in Dartmoor's protected habitats. And now the government's got involved. Shosha, what's the beef? I see what you did there. No. <laughs> um, interestingly, the argument really centres around these, this issue with grazing and sheep. Um, so tensions have been running quite high in Dartmoor after Natural England sent letters to farmers in February that said as part of renewing their high-level environment stewardship agreements, HLS agreements, um, which is given to farmers who work on parts of the moors that are under protected site designations, they would need to reduce sheep grazing and livestock numbers. In particular, reportedly it's specified that in summer, farmers will need to make sure that at least 50% of livestock units are cattle or ponies rather than sheep, and absolutely no flocks over winter. Um, on top of this, the current round of HLS contracts are soon to expire, so it's quite an unstable time. And why has DEFRA got involved then? Well, the news caused uproar amongst farmers, which was directed at Natural England as the regulator, and a number of Conservative MPs weighed in, um, and a debate was held in Westminster Hall last week. So former DEFRA Secretary George Eustace said as part of this, um, Natural England was designed for an EU era where agencies were given powers to effectively implement EU law directly, and they were quotation marks, specifically designed to bypass democratic structures. Eustace <laughs> is not a fan of the EU, is he? A reminder. No. <laughs> um, and as a result of that debate, Farming Minister Mark Spencer called for an independent evidence review of the ecological state of Dartmoor's protected sites to find out whether reducing the number of livestock on the moor is actually the science-backed solution. Um, and the MP who led the debate... Uh, who's the MP for Torridge and West Evan, Sir Geoffrey Cox, um, has also argued for the current HLS agreements to be extended for a year whilst this review period takes place. Yeah, because it's, it's, I mean, it is such a tinderbox of issues because you've got the headage counts, you've got the interruption of um, sheep grazing, and then you've got this onus on Natural England to try and improve the ecological condition of, which they have to by law, of the triple SIs, which aren't doing well. And it's all these conflicting and competing problems going on. And now with DEFRA trying to lend its voice, what, what do environmentalists say about this, this, this latest intervention? Well, it, it is concerning, isn't it? And it it's kind of feeds into the last story about this tension, you know, that's going on at the moment between regulators and those that are being regulated essentially and stakeholders. Um, but the RSPB said that although farming is part of the solution, no one's arguing with that, um, as the legal regulator, Natural England must be allowed to do its job without political interference. Um, and, and this is key, I think. I mean, we've asked EFRA for more clarification on the scope of this independent review, um, including whether it will actually assess Natural England's remit. But we haven't heard back yet, I believe. If you'd like to hear more about any of the big green news stories this week, uh, please head over to our website, endsreport.com, uh, including that excellent exclusive from Pippa. So now onto our deep dive section. 
For this week's Eco Chamber, I was joined by author, bug lover and Sustain's head of sustainable farming, Vicky Hurd. Uh, it was a fantastic chat, which we broke down the significance of the latest international trade deals in the UK, uh, what we're trying to sign up to and what that means for our environment, as well as some time talking about elms, no, not the trees, but uh, the environmental land management schemes that DEFRA is trying to roll out so desperately. Take a listen. Could we kick off by talking about elms? Okay, yeah. And that, so that's DEFRA's mm-hmm. environmental land management scheme mm-hmm. in full. I'd love to talk about the structure of it with you, but right now, do you have an assessment of where we are, where DEFRA's at with elms? Could you tell us about your yes. viewpoint? Elms has been a long process, a long gestation. All of us who've been involved in the process from the beginning would agree, but we did have kickoff last year with the first schemes, the first sustainable um, farming incentive schemes, two basically around soils last year, which any farmer in receipt of the basic payment scheme could access. So that was going live with the whole thing for all farmers. Well, not all farmers, a certain percentage of farmers. And this year, we hope it'll go even more um, accelerated. They've accelerated, brought forward six schemes that we're expecting to come over the next few years. They brought a lot of them forward this year, expecting them in June. So that SFI, you mentioned the Sustainable mm. Farming Incentive. Incentive, yeah. That's one of three tiers. There, it is one of three of tiers, elms. yes. Um, uh, mm. Can you just tell us about the other two? Yeah. there's There was going to be three tiers called the Sustainable Farming Incentive, the Local Nature Recovery Scheme and the Landscape Recovery Scheme. The Sustainable farm incentive is the first one and it's gone live and it's going to have lots of different things that farmers will be able to apply for, getting them on the ladder of the transition uh, towards nature and climate-friendly farming. The second one was more detailed, more ambitious and involved groups of farmers coming together to deliver public goods like nature recovery. But it's now been dropped as local nature recovery. It's now going to be countryside stewardship plus. Plus. So it's building on the existing old... European schemes that we designed here, but with a plus. So it's going to be different and it's going to have more money. What DEFRA is describing now is adding to the current schemes, making it work with the SFI, the first tier scheme, um, so there isn't confusion. Um, But it's a simpler approach, just building on what we already have. And that makes a lot of sense to DEFRA and I think to the farming unions. The final tier is the landscape recovery, which is large scale recovery of landscapes and natural systems that we need, we desperately need to recover. So it's involving all the landowners in area coming together to apply for a very large amount of money for whole recovery schemes. So that's only in certain areas and for certain land types. And we don't know how much those schemes are going to be allocated, but we do know at the moment the government's paid out about £10 million under the SFI scheme, um, that first tier of elms. They want, they want 70,000 farmers on board in total for elms. And at the moment, I think they've got 2,000 applications mm. for under the SFI. That's a long way to go, isn't it? It is. It's a very long way to go. And that ambition is very welcome. We believe all farmers should, all farmers that can should be involved in this agroecological transition, as we call it. But it's, yeah, it's a long way to go. They, they need to do a lot more to attract all farmers into it and to make it work for farmers in terms of the design and the payment methodology, which isn't working right now. So yeah, they've got a long way to go. But when these six new schemes come in, they're quite varied in, their, in what they're aiming for in terms of public goods. And 
they're not going to have um, such complex makeup of the ones that were announced last year. So I think a lot more farmers will get involved. But I think DEFRA's got to go a long way to persuade more farmers to get, I think it's to 80,000 they were aiming for rather than 70. So, um, and that is what we should be aiming for. So back to that first question, where yeah. do you think DEFRA's at? With, with its rollout, well, the money, oh, the money, with its... the money. We know there needs to be more. You know, they've they've implied that there's sort of what we had before, two point four billion. Um, it will, you know, by the end of this parliamentary period, it's very confusing because now we're tying it up with what's being paid out for countryside stewardship. Um, but we have, I have to say, I'm pleased with the way that they've listened to us and the industry about increasing the payment rates, and they have done that this year in response to farmers saying it's not going to work. And that's a lot to do with the fact the market isn't really working and functioning, which we could talk about. But, you know, they, but the fact that they don't get the market awards and they can't make the changes they need to make to be environmentally friendly um, without adequate reward. And so government's listened and they've increased the rates for a lot of the schemes. And is is there a danger though that with so with one hand it seems like the government's kind of giving yeah. with as a replacement mm-hmm. for the common agricultural mm-hmm. policy. Is there a danger that it's going to be snatched away with the other when it comes to international trade deals? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're absolutely terrifying, really, these trade deals and our lack of coherent trade policy. It's really, we're giving with one hand farmers and say, and, and giving and instructing or demanding huge changes from, from the industry and quite rightly for climate um, adaption and mitigation and to restore nature, which we absolutely know is, is as critical. So we're saying that to farmers at the same time, potentially open the gates to loads of produce, livestock, um, fruit and veg, um, grains, sugar from countries where our standards are much lower. And, um, you know, they, they, we seem to be having a policy which doesn't connect those two things at all. And we know that there was infighting between the departments, the government departments, which we know is incredibly unhelpful anyway and it's particularly bad now so we, we've got farmers that are facing so many challenges on top of that they've got these potential flooding of imports lower standards it's it's a it's a completely incoherent policy setup there is on the horizon a uk india trade mm, deal yeah uh can you take us through some of the red flags that are appearing for you and your organisation with that when it comes to yeah. the environmental sustainability yeah. of that deal? Yeah, we were particularly worried about that when it comes to issues relating to pesticide use. Um, and that's not about us being better and India terrible. Um, but we do know that the Indian government is putting pressure on global institutions to weaken global um, efforts to reduce the toxic load in, you know, in the global atmosphere and things like that. But we know that... Um, workers and the environment in India will suffer if they increase their imports as a result of the trade deal with us. Um, And that will hurt Indian workers as well as the Indian land, as well as our consumers, because it will be chemicals, um, chemical residues on the food that we import, like grapes, like onions, all sorts of produce that is destined to be much higher in terms of imports from India. Um, And that will undermine UK farmers' attempts to to reduce their pesticide input, which we're absolutely in the year of doing, because we're going to be introducing an integrated pest management standard, which is really great. But, you know, facing that at the same time, it's it's crazy. So the UK farmers would argue, hey, we can't use the same pesticides, herbicides Mm. as our competitors. So is there a danger then that they might veer towards intensification? There's two things, really. That might happen. Um, In order to compete, farmers will have to intensify their production. And that will also, at the same time, 
put pressure on the government to weaken our currently not brilliant, but reasonably high pesticide regulations in terms of residues, in terms of licensing and use. Those um, regulations relate to European regulations, which are the best in the world, even though they're not perfect. Um, but there'll be huge pressure on the UK to unilaterally weaken those regulations. Um, and that will come from the India deal. It will come from other deals um, because those countries want to export to the UK. And so that will really put farmers in a further squeeze that they can't, you know, they, they're between a rock and a hard place. And there was at the time an enormous clamour when it came to the UK-Australia mm, trade deal. Yeah. It seems to have died down. Is that just because the media eyes moved on or? The media eyes moved on and I think they've probably got a bit bored of talking about trade, but Australia and New Zealand are within the new Trans-Pacific trade deal, which, you know, they're in that. So all the things we said when the New Zealand and Australia trade deals weren't um, negotiated are writ large in this new deal with 11 other countries as part of the new Trans-Pacific agreement, which we can talk about. But we were very worried on a number of counts. Animal welfare regulations are different in both those countries. Pesticide regulations, hormones in beef use, topamine in pigs, um, antibiotics. Antibiotics is a big concern. We, we co-host the um, Alliance to Save Our Antibiotics. And the great thing is in the UK, we were really making headway. Uh, you know, independently, farmers are reducing their use of, of antibiotics in, in many ways. Not enough, but really going in the right direction voluntarily. The what, government what, is listening. What's the problem with antibiotics, overuse of yeah, antibiotics? Yeah, antibiotics, um, overuse. And that it's been a really big problem for many years that we've been using antibiotics to both facilitate intensive livestock production. Um, and they were used as um, growth promoters because they allow animals in very um, intensive systems to grow rapidly, um, competing with the gut bacteria and things like that. But to, to cut, cut a long story short, we've actually been going in the right direction because what happens when you overuse antibiotics, they become less useful in a medical sense. So we're losing our ability to use really critically, medically critical um, antibiotics in operations and post-operations. And, and that is a global crisis, the rise of antibiotic resistant bacteria. And they become resistant because the pressure for them to evolve resistance is greater because you're using it in livestock production. And that's a problem globally. We should be leading the world in antibiotic, reducing antibiotics in farming um, and building resistance. It's, it's a critical issue that we should be leading on and not doing deals where we won't be able to do that. And you know, these deals are undermining all that um, good progress that we've made in the last few years. But the danger is we've made a deal with Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Other countries will be looking at that deal, mm. like India, and say, well, hang on a minute. That's exactly what's happened. You set yeah. a precedent. Yeah, exactly. And um, reducing tariffs on products. We've reduced massively the tariffs on beef and other products from Australia, which our farmers quite rightly said, that, that's terrible. That's going to undermine our ability to make a livelihood. But that precedent was seen by all the countries in the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership as a, um, a thing that they will also ask for. They will demand that of the UK. You've done that for Australia and New Zealand. You're going to have to do it for us if you want to come into this 11-country trade agreement. And on that, the, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership I mean, to me, it sounded like something out of Star Wars. Yeah, like CPTPP is very difficult to remember as well, oh, yes. It, it, sounded, it literally yes. sounded like, like uh, the Galactic mm. Empire playbook. Um, and that is that is to join yes. a group of a block mm. with countries like Australia and Canada and New Mexico, Zealand, Mexico, New Zealand, yeah. Japan. Japan. On that block, what are the dangers there? 
for you that you see it when it comes to sustainability? Well, I think it's worth noting that we joined the block. We didn't negotiate the deal because the deal was already agreed two years ago. What we had to negotiate was being acceding to that block. So it wasn't like um, when we negotiated with Australia, the detail of the chapters of our, of our trade deal. We couldn't do that with the CPTPP <laughs> because it was already agreed. What we had to do was give things up and promise things like, and, and one of the ones that has got a lot of people worried is, is the reduction in tariffs for palm oil from Malaysia, because that's one of the members of the bloc. And that we know already palm oil is a huge problem for um, rainforests in, in Indonesia, Malaysia and places like that. Critical um, area for orangutans, for diversity and for climate change um, because forests obviously retain a lot of carbon. And that is extremely worrying. But it's just one of many things that we're going to have to give give into um, to allow us to join that big block a long way away. You know, it's just amazing that we've uh, given these things up. And I think um, there's other issues around um, beef hormones in beef from Canada, um, Mexico. Um, there's issues around um, livestock standards. Um, uh, you know, it, it, the list is very long in terms of all the standards that we have got higher standards better standards than those countries. But when entering into these mm. trade deals, we're, like you say, we're going to have to give. Yeah. Uh, I read that the government thinks that, that in total, this, the trade between the UK and the CPTPP mm. represents about 6.8% of the total UK trade, which to me sounded like a very oh, yes. small figure mm. with what you're saying is a lot of give. Yes. A give in, yeah, it's, it's a complex um, trade deal. I understand it's only going to be providing 0.025% GDP. Right. Which is a tiny amount, you know, when we're giving so much up and having to, you know, the likelihood of us having to weaken our pesticide standards, for instance, as the countries say, well, we're going to export grapes to you or, you know, all sorts. And antibiotic use in, in Japan, for instance, one of the countries is much higher than here, much, much higher. And um, if they want to export products to us, we'll have to allow that. Um, and the gains aren't very big, are they? It's just incredible. So we're losing our sovereignty to a lot of countries. They're great countries, but uh, we should be able to have a set of core standards, red lines below which we won't go. And that's been a consistently absent in all these discussions. And there hasn't been also a huge absence of scrutiny of the deals. You know, we've got a, a process where MPs get 21 days to scrutinise a the deal. These are really complex documents. And we know that the um, commission that the government set up, after a lot of pressure from us, the government set up the Trade and Agriculture Commission. They haven't got the resources to do all the scrutiny required. They leapt on our pesticide um, reports, our toxic trade website, because we had, had done the detailed research on the differential regulatory frameworks in the different countries. So, you know, it's it's not enough. There's not enough scrutiny. There's not enough time for scrutiny um, by our elected representatives. For the government's part, it says that joining the CPTPP will link the UK to one of the most dynamic trading areas in the world. And it is, quote, taking advantage of its independent trade policy, championing openness and doing trade deals that work for the UK. Money-wise, uh, between October 2021 and October 2022, they say that trade between the UK and the CPTPP was worth about £110.9 which sounds like a lot, but it represented about 6.8% of the uh, total UK trade. 
as well as UK exports to the CPTPP, the other way, which are worth about £60.5 billion over that same period. The government has said that being part of this trade bloc will deliver new opportunities for growth in a way that is tailored to the UK's economy and reflects the future of the global economy. They've got to come up with a better name than CPTPP, I'm telling you. And that's it. We've reached the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal and Shosha Adi, as well as Vicky Hurd, who've taught me that bulldozers and levelling triple SIs will not end wells for anyone. The government may well let the fires rage on before they cede to the demands of the Environment Agency unions. The Westminster has weighed in on Dartmoor Sheepgate, despite the braying concerns of environmentalists, and that the Galactic Empire is just one international trade deal away. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the subscribers of ENDS, which allow for the investigative journalism to actually take place here. So if you like what you've heard, you like what you read, why not consider a subscription? In the meantime, please do email us with your thoughts, queries, concerns, heresies on ecochamber at haymarket.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.